A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to a new series of A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences from art to literature, film and music and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With Ali Sherry, an artist who works with film, sculpture, installation, drawing, painting and other media to explore geopolitical and cultural histories, the loaded sites of museums and the meanings and practices of archaeology. Ali was born in 1976 in Beirut at the beginning of the Lebanese Civil War and as we'll hear, growing up in Lebanon in this period inevitably marked his life and ultimately the art he would make. He received a BA in Graphic Design from the American University in Beirut in 2000 and then did an MA in Performing Arts at Das Arts in Amsterdam. He now lives in Paris. I met Ali just as he'd unveiled a series of sculptures he made as the artist-in-residence at the National Gallery in London, a project that reflects the breadth of his artistic language and the complexity of meanings in his work. When he began his research into the National's collection, he noted that several of the paintings had been attacked for different reasons over the last two centuries. He noticed that the response to the vandalism in the press and among staff at the National Gallery used terms more akin to descriptions of a murder than an attack on a work of art. After it was slashed by a suffragette with a knife in 1914, Velasquez's Rokeby Venus suffered a cruel wound in the neck, a ragged bruise, they said. She was a victim. In the end, Ali chose to focus his attention on the Velasquez and four more of these victims in the gallery's collection. A Rembrandt self-portrait, Barocci's The Madonna of the Cat, Poussin's The Adoration of the Golden Calf and the Leonardo cartoon, all of which have been attacked by members of the public over the years. In response to each work, Ali created a cabinet of curiosities, a vitrine with found and made sculptural objects assembled to allude to the original paintings and the damage they suffered, but also to poetically build on them, to create metaphors for human and cultural trauma and violence. This is just the latest in a series of works that Ali's made in and for museums that take on their histories of collecting and the material culture they show and reflect on the circumstances that led to the objects being severed from their original locations and the significance of the way they're shown in so-called universal or encyclopedic collections. For Manifesta, the nomadic European biennial, which took place in Marseille in France in 2019, he made The Gatekeepers, a series of totem poles assembled from antique objects and taxidermied animals, positioned at the entrance to Marseille's Fine Arts Museum, but also in sight of the neighbouring Museum of Natural History. These hybrids of nature and culture were then dotted through the Fine Art Museum's collection, in dialogue with the historic paintings. The process of bringing together antiques and preserved animals is a kind of sculptural collage. Ali describes the technique he uses as grafting. For his 2017 video, Somniculus, Ali himself occupied various Parisian museums, including the Louvre and the Musée du Quai Branly, sleeping in the empty galleries and haunting the collections. And Ali's used his own image and body in several works. In his unsettling video, My Pain is Real, from 2010, for instance, we see his face in close-up as a computer mouse seems to act as a weapon, the cursor scarring his nose and face with each movement. 
He made that work as a response to images of suffering and atrocities that have become, through the TV or computer screen, a part of our daily lives. What to do with these images, he asks. Are we complicit in the violence as we witness it? It's one of a number of pieces in which he ponders global issues and their effects. He's also explored the history of earthquakes as a metaphor for political turmoil in Lebanon and reproduced colonial maps amid atmospheric landscapes of ink and charcoal, suggesting links between the romantic spirit and empire and conquest. In discussing his work, Ali often uses the term the politics of visibility, and it's this with which I began our conversation. What does he mean by that phrase? I think it's a way of looking who what polices or what uh, governs our possibility of looking at things like what we are allowed to look at, what is allowed to be seen and what has to be remain invisible or hidden. That's how I understand the term. And the forces that are keeping it hidden are multiple, right? So it's both sort of geopolitical entities, but also cultural entities like museums, etc. Of course, uh, it could go from uh, lighting that you put uh, on an object. An object to be seen has to have a certain light. Uh, is it like in broad daylight? Is it like a very dimmed light? Is it uh, sitting in the shadow somewhere? So, yeah, I mean, it's governed by all different forces. And also it could be something metaphorical. Sometimes something is in front of us, but it's also invisible. And of course, the language of wounds and damage is a sort of crucial kind of um, visual language in, in your work, because often it's attributed to the fact that you grew up during the Lebanese civil war. Is it, how much do you attribute it to that? I think, of course, it's, it can only relate to like a personal experience. Uh, of course, it's coming from here. But I think I had this fascination with the image of the wound. I mean, it is the war experience, but also uh, I was born with a, this rare disease where I had to uh, undergo go like more than 10 different operations and uh, the last one where I was sent back home I was quite young but I was like 10 11 years old and I was sent back home with an open wound that my uh, parents had to open and clean every day till it healed by itself so I think this image of uh, having your body open remained with me and I see this the image of the wound is actually like a meeting point between the inside and the outside it's a place of where your body from which you could be penetrated and it's also where your body can just like put out maybe its organ you know it's it's this like a uh, crashing point between in and out yeah and of course, you've used this term grafting in connection with some of the works that you've made. And of course, that's a sort of surgical word, but it means much more than that in your work, doesn't it? Yes, I look at it as a, uh, as a, a surgical word, but also from uh, botany, from, you know, when you do grafting for uh, different uh, types of trees, you, you know, it's, it's a way also of creating new life, a variety. It's also a way of saving a life. I see it as two broken things come together and they heal together. That's really interesting. Can you say something about the sculptural ways in which, which you've done that? Because, of course, we're sitting in the National Gallery offices now and, and, and downstairs there is 
an installation in which lots of objects are brought together into the kind of collage, but they are linked physically, and that's a form of crafting, yeah. right? Yes. I mean, I, I like this image when things uh, clutch on each other. It's like they're, they're hang on t- uh, together. And I really see it as a way of creating a solidarity between broken bodies or a community of fragile things, whereby coming together, there's like a certain force that come out of them. So, so yeah, I see it more like a unity or a coming together rather than, you know, like a, a collage. And you call it hybridity, right? And of course, hybridity is a term which is often associated with a kind of science fictional point of view, but you're using images which existed in the past very often or or objects which existed in the past. So there's a kind of curious tension there. Yeah, I mean, I think the notion of hybridity is to oppose also to a certain uh, idea of a purity, of a, you know, like a pure origin, of an authentic origin. When looking at old objects, I mean, archaeological objects with with which I work a lot, this question of uh, being pure and, you know, like uh, archaeologists and museums deal a lot with uh, and this uh, question of uh, what is authentic and what is not and I try really to blur these lines like I work with things that are fake and real and I know that were created not long time ago but that seem like they're coming from a different past all this I try to put them on the same plane And it seems to me that there's a sort of deep concern with value in your work, all sorts of different levels of value. But, for instance, foregrounding objects that would otherwise be discarded or seen as valueless. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in who puts value on things and how things are valued. I mean, looking at hierarchies of power that create, you know, whatever has enough value to be part of uh, the dominant narrative and all the other things that are left out because they are deemed without value. A lot of the objects that I work with come from auction houses and I find auction house a great place like a a sort of like a mirror of our uh, consumerist society like how in few seconds like an object can gain more value or like lose complete interest and therefore uh, lose value and just be you know like no one would want to uh, raise an auction on it so it's like looking at fluctuations of desires in real time the more an object is desired the more its value goes up but of course we know that this desire is also a constructed desire i mean we know that our need or I don't know for the latest iPhone or the latest product is even if it's a real desire it's also uh, been constructed you know by whatever media you know like society we live in. And tell me about those auctions that you've gone to do you mean in in sort of minor auction houses in in small towns as well as the bigger auction houses? Well uh, since I live in Paris I do a lot of auction houses in Paris and it's actually it's a whole different world I don't know if you've ever been in an auction house it's like you're stepping in and everyone is looking at you like there's a newcomer you know you could see there's a community that's been built there's Lots of people who only come to watch uh, and look at people buying objects. Uh, sometimes auction houses are, there's like sales of, you know, like after someone passes away and it's like a sale of a person's uh, belongings, like a full apartment, uh, let's say, has been put in auction. So it's like 
it's you get a glimpse of people's lives, what people like to collect, what obsessions, what uh, aesthetics, they, uh, like the value. What the, so, so yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting world. And, and to see the, the, how fast everything goes, I think an average object auction, not even one minute, and it's already gone. So you have to take a very quick uh, decision on how far you're willing to go. So there's lots of adrenaline rush in it as well. And in terms of the way that you use the objects, one thing I'm struck by is that, yes, your work has a fundamental basis in critique and in a kind of objective, almost sort of scientific kind of critique. But at the same time, you you also leave space for kind of fantastical creations Mm. and the the realm of the imagination. Can you tell me something about that particular dialogue in your Mm. work? What I try to do is to look at the objects in their material manifestation. I'm not looking at this is like a bust coming from India. India or, you know, the head is coming from the Congo. So it's really looking at materiality, at shapes and forms, and try to see how does this material object connect or be complete or what kind of body can it return to. So really, it's not trying to create an already existing image I have in my head, but really responding to whatever is already there in the objects. Indeed. And of course, in your work, you yourself are a consistent presence. I'm wondering about the reasons why you wanted to foreground yourself, because you wouldn't necessarily say that you're a performance artist, but there are elements of performance within the work, right? Yeah, it's true. I mean, it comes from a very pragmatic reason that this, it's the most easy available body around. So whenever I put myself uh, in my work, it's not to talk about uh, my own specific, you know, like it's, it's Ali that is sitting there, but it is a body. And it happens that this body that I have is the way I experience the world that is around. It's, uh, it's my uh, point zero from which all my experiences start from. I experience the world through this body. So putting it on display is to talk about every single individual experience through our bodies of the world. And tell me about that balance in your practice between the object and the mediated experience, so through film or photography or whatever, your work can operate through multiple media. So what determines what feels right in terms of media? I consider myself still as a video artist or like a moving image artist. I think that's how my mind thinks. I first see things on a timeline, let's say. So even when I'm creating static objects, you know, sculptural pieces or installations, I really think about uh, how we're going to experience them from where we arrive. How do we go around them? How do we look at them? Once we see them, what do we see next to them? So I really look at it as a temporal experience. So the question, whether it's a sculpture or a film, sometimes just intuitive or sometimes I just miss working with films. I decide, why not work with film now? But I think my mind functions always, yeah, moving image, that's where I'm coming from. And so would you therefore describe some of the sculptural creations as almost having a kind of timeline or storyboarding through them? Yes, I think that's why I like also working with old objects because I think they bring their own history. The story is already embedded in them. And then what happens afterwards? So I start from where the history that's already been there. I'm not really creating I'm you know like continuing a story that has started before me that's how I look at it and uh, and by creating this constellation of coming together of different things that's all of a sudden like t- uh, talisman you put things and then suddenly magic happens something else happens so that's what I'm really looking for 
And of course, you've made works that relate to totems. In the National Gallery, there's a display of a figure who could be a kind of ritual figure, for instance. How much do you concern yourself with belief systems and particularly a kind of variety of distinctive belief systems across various cultures? I think my approach or what I take out of all the different belief systems, whether it's religious or you know any other belief system, is really the poetics of it. I'm interested in these stories that are being told, like when you arrive to a community where you have you see a totem pole and this vertical way of telling history or you know uh, talk about ancestors and ghosts and spirits and uh, other uh, you know animals and species. So my entry point is really the the poetics of these stories and that's what I relate to and try to continue in my work. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? Uh, of course, this is a, a difficult question. Living in Beirut, like my, I didn't have access to original artwork. I mean, only so art and books. But I know, like David Hockney's Bigger Splash was a painting that uh, followed me for a long time, and it was even in one of my video works. I can think of Ilya Kabakov's uh, The Man Who Flew Into Space from His Apartment, the installation. That's also something that I ended up also using uh, in one of my works. But yeah, so it was never a first-hand experience, always an imagination of what these work could really look like. Uh, I only saw them, you know, sometimes in badly printed, uh, you know, art book or school books. So, yeah, I can name these two. And, and the Kabakov particularly relates to that experience of escape. And that's something which, of course, you dealt with in various ways. Tell us about how you related your own work to that Kabakov. Yeah, I mean, the work that I did was uh, during the 2006 war where we where I was in Beirut and tra- feeling trapped uh, inside your apartment because it was dangerous to go outside. But I look at it as, as of course, uh, as escape. But I like also the image of flying and falling. I think that's what I see also in Bigger Splash. It's like this moment right after the fall or work a lot with like a landscape with the fall of Icarus, the painting by Bruegel. Mm-hmm. It's, it's also something that's, you know, like I'm fascinated by. I, so I think it's dreams of flying and falling more than escape. And, of course, absence as well in, in, in A yeah. Bigger Splash. That's yes. one of the wonderful things about it is, as you say, you, that it's after the moment yeah. where a body hits the pool and therefore what we see is the splash and we don't actually see a figure, but there's so much presence in that absence, as you like. And that's crucial in your work. Right? Yes, and, and, uh, same thing also in uh, The Man Who Flew Into Space. So we're here to witness whatever is left behind this man that flew into space. It's the ghosts of these missing presence. Uh, it's uh, the traces that we try to... To look at so the question I think of uh, tracing traces <laughs> is is something I'm very interested in looking at things that have uh, disappeared or became invisible. So which historical artist do you turn to the most today? We're obviously in the National Gallery and you've been spending a year surrounded by historical artists and you picked up on five in particular. So uh, what led you to them? Mm. Um, but it's actually the wider stories really around the works, isn't it, that drew you to? Uh, yeah, I mean, the work that are, uh, of course, in the display today uh, in the exhibition, but also I was uh, asked to, you know, like interact with other images in the collection. And it was uh, Rousseau's painting, uh, Surprised, at this small, 
like an intervention or talk around this work. I find it quite fascinating that we see in this painting a tiger in a, like a very exotic, exoticized uh, landscape uh, and like jumping in surprise. So we catch the animal really at a moment of surprise, which is the title of the of the painting, where you could see in the background like sort of a, a lighting happening. But uh, I was very interested in, in the construction of this work because we know Rousseau has never left uh, Paris actually and he only imagined these exotic landscapes in his head and the tiger that he draws is coming from a taxidermy uh, tiger that was in the National History Museum in Paris. So it's it's this invention of nature uh, where nature becomes sort of a stage that you construct and you uh, look at. So I find it quite you know like interesting and modern way of, of looking at an experience of nature that is completely artificial but at the same time quite moving actually. That's really interesting. And of course, the Rousseau isn't one of the works which relates to the vitrines, which are part of the display. But there are other natural elements in it. I mean, there's there's one particular where you work in response to a Barocci picture, which is one of the sort of famously sweetest paintings probably ever made. It's a holy family with St. John the Baptist. And in that painting, St. John the Baptist is reaching out to a goldfinch. And the look of sweetness across the faces of the of the individuals portrayed is deeply angelic, frankly. Yes. But the amazing thing is that in your response to it, you take that image, but you turn it into something else. So tell me about that response. Yeah, I mean, it is it is quite a fascinating image, of course. And as you mentioned, I mean, everyone has like these uh, very pinkish cheeks and they, they look like, you know, like a, like a very mundane, happy family kind of uh, scenery with the cat, you know, like uh, he's holding the, the goldfinch. We don't know if it's like to save it from the cat attacking it or actually uh, he's entrapping it. And I was interested in the hand gestures in the this work, Mary, that's opening her arm to ask to release the bird, uh, uh, and uh, Saint John, like holding on the bird. So, in this body language of trapping and releasing, of feeling confined and uh, you know liberated. So that's what I wanted to work on. In the sweetness uh, that is in this image, there's also violence. So I transcribed this uh, through a taxidermy of a goldfinch, uh, which we know in in Christian iconography that uh, we say that the goldfinch got uh, its uh, red spot on its head is a drop of blood from Jesus on the cross uh, that gave it this beautiful red color. So it speaks about also accepting pain and turning it into something beautiful. But also you have this like oversized white porcelain, a very classic hand that is at the same time feel like it's trapping the bird, uh, but also caressing it. So some people feel that it's like quite violent what the hand is doing to the bird, or we could see it's a bird that was already in I don't know in agony, and the hand is here trying to take care of it. So it's it's this line where violence and tenderness can exist at the same time. Uh, one other thing I thought when I was looking at that work was about weight. Because when you hold a bird, if your birds come into your house and you you manage to to catch it and then release it, you realise how light they are. And yet, of course, you've got that plaster hand which is over it and there's a certain weight to plaster. Mm. And and those are very sort of sculptural concerns. But the great thing for me about it was that it's a balance of both the the sort of sculptural qualities and the image in one. And I guess that's what you were aiming for, right? Yes, and the empty space of the cabinet because they're like sitting quite low uh, within the cabinet. So there's also like heaviness because of the wide empty space that is above the hand. So we feel like it's uh, 
it's something that has fallen, you know, from a distance. And now it's like, you don't know if it's just about to be released or it's breathing its last breath. So I think it's also the volumes that it occupies is very important. And of course, you know, I mentioned the sort of sculptural qualities there. One of the interesting things about making a project for the National Gallery, which is a, a collection of paintings in sculpture, is that you're forging whole new relationships between these paintings, which have been kind of severed from their natural conditions. They were often made for churches and were surrounded by all sorts of three-dimensional things. So I'm interested in that. You, were, you wanted to bring them into a new relationship with the physical world. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it, in a way, I was translating, like bringing them back, giving them spatial qualities. But there was also some other concerns, like when asked to respond or create work in a place like the National Gallery, like I felt like I cannot compete with the walls. <laughs> I cannot put anything up on the wall and have it exist, uh, you know, next to all the masterpieces that are in this museum. So in a way, it was like my trick of saying, okay, I'm going to occupy the empty spaces, which the painting will not come down and occupy but at the same time the cabinet what they do is like they frame they create frame for the work so it is uh, still a very confined space for the work like within these cabinets uh, framed in the you know in the structure of the cabinet but not sitting on the wall you know like uh, hiding uh, somewhere where the painting cannot go and of course the impetus for the works that you chose was that each of them were damaged in one way or another some more violently than others one had a bit of spray paint which wasn't a huge amount of damage but then of course there's the famous Rokeby Venus by Velasquez which was attacked with a knife and had massive sort of slashes across the, the canvas I mean it relates back to the question about the wound that we were talking about earlier on right yeah so I was interested in, in looking at the museum as a political site and a political site of protest where why would someone at some point decide to walk into a museum museum and to destroy a work of art. I mean, that was the initial question. And uh, I mean, surprisingly, I, I discovered there's like many artworks, many images in this uh, in this museum that I mean, I think in all museums that are attacked or violated or uh, that they chose their vulnerable nature. So this idea of how violence can emerge uh, within the museum. But what I was also looking at is what then happens to the artwork once it has been subject to violence and how the institution as the caretaker, as the institution that is responsible of protecting these artworks, what do they do? How do they respond? And also how does the public who feel like this is, you know, like a national treasure, this is part, we are in the national gallery. So there is a, like a sense of, you know, like community and national, sometimes pride also in these works. So what happens to all these uh, elements when violence all of a sudden happens. That's really fascinating because one of the things it made me think of was about my own relationship with collections. And, how, you know, if you live in London, very often, if you love art, you will go into the National Gallery for five minutes and go and see your favourite painting. I'm aware that I will go and I'll say, I'm going to see Bacchus and Ariadne mm. now. That Titian that's been so important to me. So... It's really curious that you're engaging with that relationship that people have with artworks. And as you say, as you stress, it's almost like they become people. They yeah. don't just depict people. They're almost bodies in their own right. Yeah, and I think it's it's also this moment of, of violence that uh, brings to the surface this relation to these artworks. During my research here at the in the archives of the National Gallery, whenever there used to be attacks, I was very interested to look at how the newspaper was covering these incidents what language was used and you discover like 
for instance, with the Rockaby Venus, I mean, uh, that's how journalists uh, or news reports would talk about bruises and wounds with the Leonardo, like uh, it was rushed to the conservators uh, department, like a dead body. So it's like all of a sudden these works become uh, move from being, you know, like surfaces of canvas into living bodies that uh, are uh, wounded and have to be protected and taken care of. And I find this quite fascinating, our relation of, you know, like how we feel a sense of like we are like these artworks. Let's talk about contemporary artists now. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? Uh, <laughs> I think I would. I like artworks more than uh, artists. I think I'm, there's certain artworks that I really feel drawn to, and then I could really love at some point, and like two years later, I, I can hate. So yeah, I, I don't want it to be represented for anything I do. <laughs> I mean, one of the things about what you do that's fascinating is its engagement with a whole culture of the kind of institutional critique and I wonder to what extent was your language developed in response to other artists or was it almost a sort of tangential way of thinking that locates you within that kind of recent history? Yeah I mean the idea of this the residency that I did here at the National Gallery is to invite an artist to be in dialogue with the, with the collection and to think about operation system of the museum of the institution that is housing all these uh, fabulous magnificent uh, artworks so I was necessarily in dialogue. I mean, I was asked to come here and to be in dialogue. When you mentioned like the uh, Rockaby Venus and, uh, you know, the cabinet that I created, that was a commentary on the attack that happened by one of the suffragettes in 1914 on the painting. What I wanted to look at is what was Velasquez doing with the Rockaby Venus. I mean, we know he decided to his representation of Venus was very modern for a very classic uh, subject. Venus is uh, giving us her back. She's looking at herself in the mirror. The mirror is placed quite central in the painting. And uh, Venus is not looking at us. She's looking at herself. It's like empowering this female figure that she's self-sufficient. She doesn't need the viewer to exist. She exists by herself within the system that the painting is creating. And we can only have access to her face is through this reflection where we feel like we're sneaking in on her and the face that Velasquez decides to draw in the mirror is a very hazy very you know like uh, almost out of focus uh, face telling us that you will never get access to know this face of this person. So all these elements were very crucial for me to say okay that's the project that Velasquez was presenting a very modern way of, you know, representing female figure uh, and what happened when this female figure got attacked, but also for reasons that it was a female uh, figure that, you know, that was naked and that was sitting in the National Gallery. So my interpretation of this work uh, was to go to an older uh, representation of a female figure, which is inspired by a fetish that was found in Germany. It's a 45,000 year old female uh, fertility figure in bone that I decided to blow up and make this like large-scale wooden uh, version of it uh, with the scarification uh, that were already on the original fetish. Trying to talk about the modern uh, version of Velázquez all of a sudden now comes back in the form of the archaic, of the ancient, something more 
primordial, something you know more almost savage, but not in a in a moral sense. You know, it's like it's the really feeling of survival, of uh, protection. It's like uh, a mother whose uh, children got attacked, and she would defend them like uh, like an animal would uh, defend uh, their children. So trying to go from what the intentions of the artists who created the work and from there pick on and see what did uh, violence do to it. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. The app offers access to more than 60 cultural institutions through a single download. If you download Bloomberg Connects, you'll find guides to many of the major museums on Fifth Avenue in New York that make up what's known as the Museum Mile, from Neuer Gallery and the Guggenheim to the Museum of the City of New York and El Museo del Barrio further north. Between them lies the Jewish Museum, which is also available on the app. The digital guide includes access to exhibitions, past and present, thematic tours and a playlist called Points of View. Among the contributors to the playlist is Kahinde Wiley, a former guest on this podcast who discusses how he used a Ukrainian Mizra in the museum's collection, a decorative plaque found in synagogues, as the background for his painting Alios Itzhak. To explore interactive guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. The app's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. The next question is about what you have pinned to the studio wall. Your studio has been in the National Gallery for the last year. So tell me about that. Do you have stuff around you in that studio or do you just wander downstairs into the galleries? Uh, very interestingly, so the when, first time when I came here, I brought with me some drawings that were actually in my studio in Paris, which was these watercolors of dead birds. So uh, I have my birds that come with me. I wanted to feel, you know, like uh, make the studio more homely, something that feels, uh, you know, more familiar to me. So, uh, so yeah, I take these like little birds uh, sometimes with me to different places. There's another uh, image that usually also I take with me now. I didn't bring it to the studio, but I brought it from Beirut to my Paris studio first when I moved in. It's a photograph, it's a postcard, a reproduction of a photograph of Man Ray, of Marcel Proust dead after he died. So this image has been with me also for a long time, and it's also something I bring with me to make spaces uh, more familiar. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I know that image, and it's a macabre image, of course. Yes. It's, a, it's, it's, it's a great writer in death. So yeah. uh, what is it about that particular image? Because as you say, it makes you more at home, but does it keep you on your toes or keep you unsettled? Or? <laughs> on the contrary, I like being with the dead. <laughs> that's why I bring dead, uh, like images of dead birds with me, like drawings that I do of dead birds. No, I, mean, I think this image really fascinates me because, I mean, it's Marcel Proust who wrote uh, La Recherche du Temps Perdu. Uh, I'm not sure of the title in English, so looking for the lost... In, su- in search of lost... Uh, Sorry, in search of the lost time. So someone who spent his whole life trying to create this this work, this oeuvre of looking for the lost time and to see him as dead as ever, you know, like the way Man Ray uh, photographed him, like looking really dead. I found it humorous. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, like I I feel uh, more connected with the dead maybe than the living. You brought Man Ray up. I was going to ask you anyway, do you see yourself as having a kind of relationship with surrealism and, and the histories of surrealism? 
I think it's definitely there in my work and uh, it's actually... Uh, was one of the observation uh, of the curator of Priyash Mystery who said uh, once we set up the show here that it's funny that at this time in London there's like the surrealist show currently at the Tate there's the Louis Bourgeois show also happening there's the Bacon uh, uh, so it's like there is this sort of, I'm not sure if we can call it a comeback but the, let's say a resurfacing of the surreal it's like maybe also a way to deal with uh, with our current reality I mean we're Maybe it's also like our, you know, like defense mechanism that's uh, resort to, to uh, the surreal in order to deal with reality again. That's really interesting. Of course, it was a revolutionary and radical and irrational movement. As you say, you emerged from a period of civil war. And yes. so, the, so your work comes from a kind of response to desolation and destruction. Yeah. And uh, lost of uh, what is normal and even what is real. I mean, we when you live in a, like a moments of crisis, I mean, all your systems or everything that you, you knew uh, uh, all of a sudden becomes, you know, jumbled or, you know, like we... Nothing is uh, the, the way it was before. So usually coming after a war or, you know, like a major crisis, I mean, I think it's normal, this look at the reality that comes out of it. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? Living in, in Paris, I go uh, a lot to Musée d'Orsay because I think it's a very good size of a museum. It's not the Louvre where it's huge and you always feel you're missing out on everything. So you can still like just go 15 minutes and uh, walk out. So yeah, I think that's my like go-to museum. It's really interesting because, of course, you you made some Nicholas, which is one of your most powerful works, in French museums, a whole series of French museums. And actually, the Musée d'Orsay was probably the last one I was thinking that you would have said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, but also maybe because it was my. Uh, way of entering or you know, like uh, occupying a space in these other institutions. Maybe I feel uh, uh, too much at home at the Musée d'Orsay that I don't need to make a film about it. <laughs> so it was also a way of how to make it more uh, domesticating, let's say, these other institutions that are more hostile for me. That's really interesting. So let's talk about some Nicholas a bit because it's a it's a film piece. There's a Latin word at the origin it's of it. So some Nicholas, tell us what that means. Yeah, some Nicholas is the Latin word for light sleep, and I look at this image of light sleep to differentiate it from deep sleep. Like looking at the image when you say we fall asleep, so there is a sense of descent. Like when you say I'm falling asleep, so we feel something is falling, and I try to oppose it to this light sleep where I see it as a something that lifts us up we're like slightly above when we're in this state of light sleep and i think it's a state of also of uh, uh, consciousness or kind of receptiveness to the world that is very different from actual sleep i mean in light sleep we're still can hear uh, noises we can still smell or our senses are still awake except our eyes are closed and it is also a way to to comment on this i think lost sense of the sight, of the gaze that has been lost to, you know, capitalist consumerist uh, society. We've lost the ability of being able to be in complete possession of our gaze, what we look at and what we see. So light sleep is like awakening all other senses. And how did that relate to your experiences in the museum? I mean, it's also a metaphor about objects or works that inhabit the museum. I look at them as being also in this state of uh, light sleep. In the film, in some Nicholas, you see me, but you see someone sleeping inside the museum, like lying on a bench uh, inside, you know, like dark at night uh, inside 
at the museum. So in, in a way, it's like proposing like a horizontal encounter with these uh, objects. We're not anymore the all knowledgeable viewer that is standing and looking at things and giving them meaning. We're all of a sudden a body amongst other bodies and like proposing this as a way of being in the world, a way of connecting with things around us, not as the image that you see uh, in some Nicholas of the Ecorche, the, the man, you know, like uh, that was represented in the 18th century, male figure, uh, uh, muscled, standing, hand raised up, leading the procession of all other species. Uh, so trying to counter this, you know, like all knowledgeable man with a sleeping figure amongst other sleeping bodies. And of course, as part of that, because of the sleeping, the objects become like apparitions or like imagined beings as well. So there's a sense in which they occupy a space between reality and unreality or, or subconsciousness somehow. Yeah, and there is the power of to be receptive to the power of these objects that to affect us. I mean, when we speak again about the National Gallery, like someone would attack uh, an artwork, I think what it reveals is that and it's very, it was very interesting that this is also in the uh, report of the vandals that they would say themselves that they felt an urge to destroy it, to shoot at the Leonardo, to, to slash uh, a painting. So these artworks have power to affect us emotionally, but even physically. So trying to be receptive to like it's a two way uh, relationship and we're not just the lookers. I wanted to also explore your relationship with museums of natural history, because particularly in your project in Marseille, you made a very clear connection between two parts of which are effectively part of one building, but very distinctive. So there's the Museum of Natural History, and then there's the Musée des Beaux-Arts, so the fine art collection, and they're kept separate. And you made a very sort of conscious statement about that division between nature and culture, right? Yes, of course. I mean, it was very interesting for me that these two institutions that are located, as you mentioned, in the same building, but they had never worked together for more than 100 years. And for me, it was like a translation of all the hierarchies, uh, how we divide, you know, the natural world and the uh, and the culture, how certain things are allowed in certain places and other things not. So what I did for this project is I brought taxidermied animals into the Beaux-Arts Museum. It's uh, like a commentary of, like, do animals have to be dead to enter the Beaux-Arts Museum? Like, uh, you know, like picking on on the, do women have to be naked to enter the Metz Museum with the gorilla girls? So uh, it was a way, like, why the living world is not allowed in the cultural world and vice versa. So I I wanted to bring in these cultures that are made of, you know, man-made objects and uh, natural objects, lots of animals, uh, birds, uh, tiger, a tiger that was actually in a zoo that just behind the museum that died in the zoo and then it's a Bengali uh, tiger so arrived to France, to Marseille uh, died in the zoo, went into the Natural History Museum, then it was in the storage for like 50-60 years and so I brought it back up and brought it inside the Beaux-Arts Museum so it's trying to create these links and, and again letting in into different narratives things that were not allowed in we talked about the macabre nature of the of the Man Ray earlier on, but of course, in a way, what strikes me about the use of taxidermy and, of course, your your watercolors of the dead birds that you were talking about is, of course, there's a whole history of using dead animals and pretending that they're not dead, yeah. and and it seems to me that that you're turning that on its head to yeah. a certain degree. Yeah, because what I see in them is like immortalization of death and not of life. You know, I see these taxidermied animals. It's like we have made death 
visible and made it immortal. I mean, whatever that means, making death immortal. So yeah, that's what fascinates me. Also, I always work with old taxidermy, which is a bit like, you know, like always not that well done, you know, always a bit, uh, you know, like uh, falling apart. There's something, you know, not really right about them because they reveal also, you know, like uh, what they are made of. And the tiger that I used uh, in uh, Marseille, in the Beaux-Arts, you know, it had its body stitched somewhere because, you know, like the skin had broken. So they become representations, but also like objects of construct, like revealing the whole process that they are trying to play. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? I'm not sure if you call this a cultural experience. I'm going to say the war. I mean, growing up in Beirut during the war years, uh, during the civil war. I mean, we call like uh, living through a war, but it's actually it's life. You know, it continues. It's uh, it's living life in not normal conditions. So also culture continues even in the context of crisis, uh, especially when it lasted, you know, 17 years. So, yeah, I would call my warriors. Yeah. And, and, and in terms of the way that culture is circulating within that context, I guess you had access to reproductions of things like the Hockney and the Kabakov earlier on. But was that the way it was, in, you know, it was experienced through mediated forms, mm. but I guess also literature, right? Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, I think a lot literature. I mean, uh, also it's it was the escape, uh, you know, like uh, of imagining all these other places. Uh, Yukio Mishima was like very essential growing up. Like it's also uh, an author that I used uh, also in my work, especially in the first video, Encercle Tour du Soleil. Also, I mean, my experience of, uh, let's say, firsthand access to culture was after the end of the civil war in Lebanon, where Beirut was really like a very interesting place uh, in terms of the art scene. I mean, many artists uh, that are quite known today, you know, that was labeled, you know, the post-war, you know, like a Lebanese art scene. So I was uh, like a second generation after these artists. Uh, uh, th- these are the first time I went to see exhibitions, films, was by these people who were working at this time in Beirut. And I was even working closely with them. You know, I acted in their films, uh, designed their books, you know, like, so I was like really almost 10 years younger, but, you know, like quite close t- uh, to them. So, yeah, I think that's like my first hand art experience. And um, we talked about literature there. So which writers or poets do you return to? Well, I have to say Mushima is like I, I like rereading uh, Mushima's books. It's because I think it mainly connects me to a certain, you know, like young age when I was like starting to discover the world and my sexuality. So also it's like, uh, you know, like uh, it's like it just sends me back to uh, a sweet moment. Indeed. And of course, as you say, there are literary references in your work. I was intrigued that in your text, which is called Denatured, at the top of that, you had a quote from yeah, Donna Haraway. Yeah. And so, again, there's, you know, talking about hybridization and, and the post-human, it yeah. seems to me that Donna Haraway is very pertinent to your work. Yeah, of course. And it's also about uh, thinking about species and our relation to different species and how do you position ourselves in the world. Something also that I've been working a lot with is the question of mud, of, you know, this hybrid of the coming together of earth and water and Donna Haraway speaks also about this about the the ability of mud also as lubricant as you know like easing you know tensions and frictions but also being you know like the creation you know like how 
a lot of the creation myth, you know, like uh, mud is in most creation myth, you know, Adam that's created from mud in Gilgamesh, the golems. So, yeah, so thinking about elements that come together and create life or create something else. And again, you used a literary title for your series, which was called Return of the Beast. And that's from Tarek El Aris. Yes. Uh, tell me about that yeah. text and why that was important. Yeah, I'm a very close reader to Tarek's writing. Someone he's a friend, but also someone I think we have a, a, like, a, let's say, intellectual exchange uh, in my work like I'm really inspired by the work he's been doing especially this text the return of the beast actually I'm also inviting Tariq to come and do a talk about the show here so we're continuing our uh, our dialogue and I was interested in the, the Tariq Aris talks about this about uh, etymology of the beast uh, which is coming from the Arabic word wahash uh, that we use in Arabic to also speak about longing like if I say uh, I miss you we say I am feeling beast or I feel the beast. So it's this idea of homesickness, uh, longing, missing, that turns you into a beast or like feeling the beast. I think it's, it goes back more to an etymological meaning of the beast or something that doesn't resemble itself. It's like you're a different version of yourself. I feel like someone else. I don't feel like myself. So it's all these expressions that we use that are I find like really interesting. And Tara speaks about, about this idea of the return. And I tried to extrapolate his return of the beast and looking at different forms of return. When I work with historical objects, it's the return of the fragment to a body or, you know, to be complete or the return back inside the museum or also thinking about restitution today and thinking about when these objects return to their home uh, country or, you know, to the place of uh, origin. So looking at all these movements of coming back and uh, talking about the, the impossibility of coming back the way we were. It's always uh, coming back but in a beastly form, in a deformed, disfigured, that never resemble itself again. What music or other audio do you listen to as you're working? I listen a, a lot to uh, podcasts, uh, like French podcasts, or I also like listening to the radio. Like uh, I prefer to be surprised, you know, by uh, music, uh, you know, like a selection like radios that I I trust. So it's a kind of music that I usually listen to, but I don't like to put playlists. Like I don't like to know what's coming up next after the song. So so yeah, it keeps me like more awake. And do you listen to different types of audio for different types of work? I mean, obviously, when you're working in film, it's different because sound is involved. Right? Yeah. But, but do you have different modes it, that you work in? Uh, I don't think there's like a system in it where whenever I'm doing this, I listen to, to this. It's more like I like routines. I like, you know, like I like things that I know, you know, I, I think to create the possibility of something new happening. I need to be something where it's quite, you know, like familiar, even with the soundscape. So the familiarity almost reduces the distraction and therefore the, the sort of your focus can be entirely on the work. Uh, I think so. I think so. Or also it could be like this deformation you get like from living in a, you know, like crazy city like Beirut and, you know, like a, where anything can happen at any time. So it's like this need always to create environments that feel safe and familiar. 
And of course, you've used music in your work quite powerfully, haven't you? In some Nicholas, for instance, there's a sequence of this song called Bleeding Nun by yes. Scrambled Eggs, yeah. which is this sort of punky, yeah. really quite aggressive noise. And it's also in this really quite sort of traumatic scene in which yeah. you're bandaging your own face. So yeah. tell me about what you wanted to do with that. Yeah, so the, actually Scrambled Eggs, I mean, it's a Lebanese group uh, that work under different names. So the members also are part of different groups. And I wanted uh, exactly like to create this. The film is it's very quiet. Uh, it happens uh, at night in museums where you barely hear the footsteps, you know, like the the sound of the emptiness and wind and very, very subtle uh, sounds. And all of a sudden I wanted this eruption of, you know, like this quite punk, rebellious, you know, music with this image of me putting plaster uh, bondage around my face, which is a practice that was used to create these uh, like uh, molds, you know, face molds that you see in the film. So it is also a process of not being able to see again because we're under bondage but what I do is like recreate also uh, the gesture from Xiao Dalu where you take the knife and cut where the eye is but this time instead of uh, cutting the uh, the organ to lose sight I'm cutting the bondage in order to see again and then like an eye pops up and start you know like looking again so uh, yeah I mean so it's like reversing violent mechanism of you know gaze and uh, visibility the use of glass eyes is really powerful in your work. In downstairs in the National, there are two works which involve glass eyes. There's one in, which features a mm. pile, but then also one which is stuck onto the sculptural bust. Tell me about your use of that, because it's sort of a dramatic element within the work each time, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and, and I got very interested in these objects. These are prosthetic uh, glass eyes that are 19th century organs that were used to people who lose their, their eyes. So they're put you know, to replace you know, like a fake eye that cannot look but it makes you look like you can see. So it's, I, th- I find there's lots of poetics in these objects, and they're quite fascinating, uh, actually. They're very telling for me. I mean, it's like reversing the gaze, you know, like uh, us being the subjects uh, that were subject to these eyes that are looking at us wherever we go. Was there also an element of saintly imagery? Because, of course, Saint Lucy is often pictured with her eyes on a plate. And I wondered if, if that was a reference, because you're surrounded by images of saints <laughs> yeah, I, in didn't, that. I, I didn't think about it, but yeah, why not? I mean, it could also be a, a reference. I mean, the eye has lots of significance, you know, the all-seeing eye, the, you know, the, the eye of God, you know. Now we've gotten used to more and more, you know, like being seen from above the, you know, this uh, drone, uh, you know, like kind of vision. But it's kind of eye that, of course, reminds us, you know, like of a, a superior uh, government governing gaze. I normally ask what other media influence your work at this point and of course film is central to your work and, and you mentioned Bunuel there and, yeah. I, and I, Bunuel and Dali's Shannon yeah. and it, that's one of the films which I've been most struck by mm. in my life. Mm. For you, is it that sort of unforgettable moment that begins a film that you've just referenced? Yeah, but I think it's uh, this, of course, has become part of my imaginary. And it's like it's a it's an image that you know is shared. Also, I mean, you can reference it very easily, and uh, people can pick up the reference. But in terms of like cinema reference, and it's something like I watch lots of films. But a film that I always like to go back to is Simon Young. I don't want to sleep alone. This film is like I think I've watched it maybe a hundred times and I don't know why just like it's a feel good for me film but it's not it's not at all a feel good film but for me it's like the kind of experience I get I think it's the soundscape also in the film there's lots of of course like a lot of timing Young's films uh, there's lots of rain sound of water I know yeah I think that would be like one of like reference work that I go back to that would be this film 
And of course, there's a very direct reference to film in your piece called Magnetic Liaison. And and interestingly, it's the audio from that film that you use. Tell us about that work. Yeah, interestingly, actually, this film has just been restored and it's getting screened uh, again in cinemas. I think it's one of the most beautiful films maybe ever made, but anyway, Lebanese film ever made. It's called Beirut La Rencontre. I'm not sure that the English title is Beirut The Meeting. And it talks about these two characters, a man that lives in West Beirut and a woman that lives in East Beirut. And with the impossibility of meeting, they they decide to exchange uh, audio tapes. So like send messages because it was wartime, there's no telephone. So it was the only uh, possible mean of uh, traveling or connecting with the other is through sound. So when sound can travel and cross, uh, you know, borders. So yeah, so I take out actually the the tape recordings that are sent in this film where sound become again like uh, physical um, sculptural pieces where two sound recorders are put uh, next to each other and they actually dialogue there's like the way the piece is made that uh, you hear the man talking on on the first uh, recorder and then the woman answers on the second recorder so it was commenting on this impossibility of meeting but also you know like creating human connections that i try to you know actually physically make possible through this when the two tape recorders are really next to each other and are creating an actual dialogue is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? Uh, breakfast. <laughs> very essential for me. That's, my breakfast is very important and I need to take time, enough time. So if I know if I have to leave the house early, then I would wake up way before just to have real proper time to have breakfast. I think it's like this kind of routine. I eat the same thing every day. Uh, so it's like the kind of routine I need to survive, uh, you know, like <laughs> the world outside. So what do you eat every day? It's a Lebanese uh, labne. It's like a kind of cheese, uh, mm. yogurt, uh, uh, and za'atar, which is thyme. It's like a herb. Yeah, thing. lovely. Yeah. So every morning for, the, I think, the past 20 years, I eat the same thing. <laughs> That's great. And is, it, is that thinking time? Is that about sort of having time to kind of set your mind in a certain direction, as it were? I think it's like not thinking time. It's like I try to, if like if there are things I can less think about, uh, it's easier, it makes life easier. So whatever things I know, like I don't need to ask myself what I'm going to have for breakfast. So this way, less question, I just do this. I'm happy with it. If, if it's nice and happy, I don't need to change it. So I'm that kind of person. If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? I would say a bigger splash. Not because I think it's the most beautiful artwork, just it's this work has accompanied so much in my life and like uh, in difficult times as well. I have very emotional attachment to it, not because of the actual work. It's like it's a relationship with the work. And lastly, what's art for? Art is our way of, you know, accepting the idea of death. Uh, It's our way of dealing with death. I think all creative gestures are measured uh, through the distance they have with this idea of death. Whatever death is, we can. It's the unknown. It's the it's the opposite of life. It's you know when we don't exist anymore. So this like a big question I think that we all (laughs) live under is uh, this unknown, which is death. I think uh, art help us, let's say, survive or at least like make it more bearable to live. Well, Ali, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. (laughs) 
Ali Cherry's exhibition, If You Prick Us, Do We Not Bleed, is at the National Gallery in London until the 12th of June. And Ali will feature in the main exhibition of the Venice Biennale, The Milk of Dreams, curated by Cecilia Alemani, between the 23rd of April and the 27th of November. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Do also subscribe to our other podcasts, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the art newspaper podcasts are Julian Mahalska, Amy Dawson and Henrietta Bentel. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway. And a big thank you to Ali Sherry. See you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.